Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Food Focus podcast. Good to be back after taking a week hiatus for Shop.org in L.A. last week. Trent Kling alongside Leighton Kling. Coming up, we'll talk about a new dairy-free ice cream. We'll talk about PepsiCo earnings and also earnings from Monsanto, a company we don't discuss very often here on the Food Focus. We'll also discuss National Taco Day. But first, this, you know about the perks that come with owning your own business, like financial freedom, being your own boss, and having more control of your time. But maybe you're just not sure where to start. Well, all of these benefits could potentially be yours if you open a UPS store franchise. You've heard us talk about it before, but they bring several decades worth of experience. And really, you can own your own business very easily through stability and the support and reputation of a world-renowned brand and a proven business model with all the training and marketing support you'll need to make your dream come true. Stores are available in both large and small markets across the country, and their franchising experts will help you find a location that's just right for you. Plus, there's financing for those who qualify and special programs for military veterans. The time to promote yourself to business owner is now. Visit theupsstorefranchising.com slash focus to get started today. That's theupsstorefranchising.com slash focus. Well, while we were away at shop.org just across town in L.A., the ice cream brand Halo Top released a fresh line of non-dairy frozen desserts. This follows an increased trend towards dairy-free products in the frozen dessert section. I talked about trying some cashew milk frozen dessert from So Delicious a few months ago on the podcast, and here we have Halo Top jumping into the same category. And a lot of you may be familiar with Halo Top because you've seen it in the grocery store. You might know about their outline concept, but Leighton, can you talk a little bit about how Halo Top started and their genesis as a business over the last five years? It's a fascinating business. They were actually founded by a lawyer, a former lawyer, Justin Wolverton, and they're now based in Los Angeles, California. Halo Top began their rollout to stores in 2012 via distribution as a lower calorie and healthier alternative to other types of ice cream. Obviously, if you go into a grocery store, you're now seeing more variety than ever, and the variety is really differentiated by what's in the ice cream, and that's exactly what Halo Top is doing, and that's mostly about what this story is. You see they're sold mostly entirely in pints, and this is really differentiation there, too, because typical ice cream is sold in larger gallon, three-quart, half-gallon sizes, popular from traditional ice cream manufacturers such as Blue Bell, Blue Bunny, and Briars. The lower calorie aspect comes from several different factors, including stevia and prebiotic fiber, and also from air, as anyone who operates a food establishment knows. With soft-serve machines, you can see that ice cream can have variable amounts of air whipped into it. The more air, the greater the markup, the greater the margins, since ice cream is sold by volume and not weight. Here, the air allows Halo Top to market a pint of ice cream that weighs about 60% of the traditional pints, accounting for a significant portion of the calorie savings. So obviously, the more air, the less of the actual ice cream that is there for you to eat. Halo Top sales grew in a way typical of an emerging packaged foods business until late 2015. And here we can see, according to the company, their sales grew 25 times from 2015 to 2016 
almost unheard of for a company just three years old. You can see that this is exponential growth, and you see by mid-2017, Halo Top became the number one pint in terms of sales, surpassing Ben & Jerry's, the popular brand there. And this is amazing, Trent, because this is a company that really has not been on our radar too much in the recent past, but the sales growth was recently fueled by increased shelf space in major grocers, so major grocers are becoming aware of the brand. This also grew as the brand picked up in popularity via social media and other media outlets. Most recently, they've added 14 flavors in the past year and have added 25 flavors overall. So to begin the story, I talked about a lot of different brands, a lot of different differentiation within the supermarkets with ice cream, with frozen yogurt. They're trying to hit on all cylinders. So not just the ingredients, but also the flavor offerings. There were rumors about a potential sale for Halo Top this summer, but Reuters citing analyst valuation of the company around $2 billion. That does not look to be panning out thus far with any acquisition rumors coming true, but this company is very valuable and you can see that their management is bullish on their concepts. So let's talk a little bit about this new product line. We mentioned that they just released five new flavors at the beginning or towards the end, I should say, of summer, including one of the maple flavors that we discussed in a recent podcast as we were talking about some flavor momentums for fall. This particular product line in their release touting their number one spot in pint sales this summer, they actually kind of foreshadowed this. Their CEO again suggested that more big things were on the way above and beyond new flavor developments. We get those big things this week in the form of non-dairy options from Halo Top. Wolverton, their founder, said last week that the most frequent request that they get is for dairy-free options. This makes sense as many customers who are health conscious enough to seek out a brand like Halo Top may also have a lactose issue. We'll talk later on about just how prevalent lactose issues are in the United States, but in the world as well. What is interesting in these rollouts is that they aren't espousing any one type of dairy-free base on the packaging, or at least not in big, bold letters on the packaging. Oftentimes, you'll see cashew milk ice cream or almond milk ice cream or coconut milk ice cream. Rather, all of the dairy-free flavors that they have are simply marked as dairy-free. They do use a coconut in their imaging for these products, however, and this makes sense is the number one ingredient for all of these ice cream types or frozen dairy dessert types or frozen non-dairy dessert types realistically is coconut milk. However, the coconuts don't really play in largely on the packaging, just in some of their site imaging. The frozen dessert here is bolstered on the protein front, as coconut milk doesn't have a ton of protein, by pea protein and or rice protein, depending on the variety. So they throw that protein there to amp up the texture and the creaminess. They have six different flavors listed on the main page of their website and a seventh flavor that was listed in the release, but isn't on the main page of their website. We start with caramel macchiato, go on to chocolate covered banana, plain chocolate, cinnamon roll, peanut butter cup, and sea salt caramel. The seventh flavor is oatmeal cookie. Unfortunately, my personal chocolate allergy prohibits me from eating three-sevenths of their release, but looking forward to trying a few of these flavors going ahead. All of these flavors, by the way, are vegan as well, which is easy enough to do since they aren't using dairy here and none of the ingredients in the flavors would include animal products. And one other food allergy worry should at least be mostly allayed as 
as six of the flavors are gluten-free. Cinnamon roll is the only outlier. Cinnamon roll has chunks of cinnamon roll in it. It also has 360 calories per pint, which is 40 calories more than the next closest ice cream or frozen non-dairy dessert in this group. And for as much time as Halo Top spends touting stevia as their main sweetener, all of these seven flavors contain erythritol, which is a sugar alcohol that isn't fully digested by the body. So we taste the sweet, but there's low calorie intake because it can't be digested by our systems. As with other long-awaited food rollouts, for example, the Chipotle queso from a couple of weeks ago, their management said Halo Top spent a lot of time in R&D because capturing a similar texture to their main product was important. Also, they were concerned about the mouthfeel and their flavor profile as they didn't want to erode their brand by making the non-dairy options too much worse in terms of any of those categories than their existing lines. Overall, the industry is moving towards dairy-free optionality. Nation's Restaurant News had just mentioned this week that dairy-free products were a big theme in this week's MUFSO conference in Dallas, Texas that occurred on October 1st through the 3rd at the Hyatt Regency Reunion Theater. And you can see that they mentioned cheese substitutes as well and clean label cheese sausages but also cheese treated with a particular form of rennet that breaks down lactose. Rennet is a traditional enzyme used in cheese making. Lactose intolerance, much with celiac disease, seems to have won over increased awareness in recent years. You hear it a lot in the medical field, and you can see that this is due to more accurate diagnosis on the part of doctors. Studies suggest that lactose intolerance varies greatly based on ethnicity, too, with an estimated 90% of Asian Americans and 74% of Native Americans being lactose intolerant. So you can see that's a lot of people that are going to be lactose intolerant, or at least in the near future, be diagnosed as lactose intolerant. Some research even suggests that 65 to 75% of the world population lacks the ability to break down lactose, essentially meaning that the other 25% is just lactase persistent. So obviously there is some middle ground there. Some people can process lactose, but just to a lesser degree than other individuals. But you can see that companies, for-profit companies, are going to be taking advantage of this. And this company is certainly doing just that. We've discussed a constant trend towards almond and coconut milks with increased momentum recently towards cashew milk. Cashew milk has made a larger entrance in the typical and conventional grocery stores. Personally, Trent, I drink almond milk and I have for the last three to four years. So we talk all the time about the relatively low dairy milk prices. I guarantee you that is from the other complementary goods and substitute goods out there on the store shelves. This has hampered sales at companies like Dean's as we've discussed struggles with their top and bottom line revenues as of late. Meanwhile, sales of non-dairy milk have grown 30% since 2011, and that momentum is actually trending upwards. Dairy milk sales increased 7% in 2015 and another 11% in 2016 alone. Again, this is probably due to an increased population, but people are actually consuming both. So it's not just one or the other. They're going to the stores and consuming both. I know that occasionally I do put milk in my coffee as opposed to almond milk. According to Mental, 68% of parents consume non-dairy milk now. Also, studies note that margins on non-dairy milk are nearly double that of traditional milk. And you can see that this means grocers have built-in incentive to market non-dairy milk or at least give it some shelf space. And you see that, again, with cashew milk, 
really making an entrance. When we were in Los Angeles, we toured several grocery stores, and you would not believe the amount of other milks out there that were available for customers to choose from. Just last year, we discussed the backlash from the dairy industry regarding what gets to be called milk, and we see that is the same thing here with ice cream. There are already ice cream standards in place, which is why you'll see other forms of low-calorie products called frozen dairy dessert on the packaging. As far as the actual milk goes, dairy producers claim that the term milk can be misleading when plant-based milks use it, so this debate goes on. Never mind that rice milk has been called that for such a long time. Chris Gallen with the Milk Producers Federation said, all we want is for the government to do its job and enforce the regulation on the books that says, you don't got milk if it comes from a nut or a seed. That being said, we feel as though this is an inevitable consequence of people realizing that dairy is causing them bodily harm, or at least in some certain circumstances, and looking elsewhere for products used in the same fashion. Although this is an interesting topic because as you see dairy prices really being stable, you can see that in regards to cashew milk, almond milk, and all of these other alternative goods, the prices are a bit expensive. So this is a very interesting dynamic, and I'm curious to see how it plays out, especially because you have lobbyists on both sides of the argument here in terms of promoting their own goods. We move to another sector of the beverage industry, or largely the beverage industry at least, as PepsiCo released their earnings, which follow a recent trend of downward beverage sales for the company, but increased sales in their other categories. These earnings were for the third quarter of fiscal year 2017 and were reported on Wednesday of this week. Their earnings per share hit $1.48 per share on an adjusted basis versus the Wall Street expectations of $1.43 net income rose. $150 million to $2.14 billion year over year. So again, that's net income for the company. Top line revenue was a slight miss, down $0.07 billion, $16.24 billion versus the expected number of $16.31 billion. Our coverage will primarily focus today on why the company is stagnant somewhat with their top line revenue despite hitting expectations on earnings per share and increasing their net income. We can see from that baseline profit and revenue figure that the company, while struggling to gain significant traction in some areas to compensate for legacy segments that are in decline, is actually more efficient and they can still bring some shareholders immense value through their earnings. Numbers-wise now, the company seems to be struggling the worst here domestically. So in the United States is where PepsiCo is seeing the biggest hit. Their North American beverage segment brought in revenue of $5.33 billion in this quarter versus $5.52 billion in the year earlier period. Its operating profit in the U.S. also dropped a whopping 10% to $817 million from $904 million. So we see some erosion there for a number of reasons. Most notably, they're starting to see a hit on the lack of economies of scale to the same extent that they were enjoying two, three years ago when their sales were much higher. This is a very interesting company and, and one that really is trying to evolve before our very eyes. But what's interesting, and it took me by surprise when researching PepsiCo, is that it's a $156 billion company, or at least that's valuation on Wall Street. And you can see that Pepsi is showing that it is best not to make drastic changes that affect its largest brands and its top-selling products. Obviously, you think PepsiCo, you think of their best-selling, their top-selling cola drink, Pepsi, 
But obviously, innovation is going to be key here with R&D within their current brands, but also acquiring up and coming ones when the timing is right. We recently discussed the LifeWater acquisition in the second quarter and how that extension could prove positive in the long run. Obviously, that space is getting more and more crowded and shelf space is getting limited as well in that particular segment. You see that it's an overall very tight balance for PepsiCo because obviously you don't want to tell your customer base that you're shying away from your best-selling brands and that Pepsi is this new non-GMO organic company. You don't want to alienate those customers, but at the same time, you do want to get into new market segments that have been eroding your bottom line for a few years now, or at least eroding certain segments. In addition to that brand, the LifeWater brand, they also have Bai, which has struggled at times to really make meaningful entry into store shelves. And this comes also as Kroger executives most recently said that they want to clear out some brands and they want brands to actually fight harder. So not only on price point, they want prices to be lower, but also they want to scrutinize every inch of floor space looking at the ingredients and the packaging of certain items. And so this is going to be an area in which Kroger execs, Walmart execs are really going to be looking towards weaning out certain companies and buy. If you look at a typical Kroger shelf, it's actually in three different locations around the store. So while it is a very new drink to some, it's perhaps going to be something that they're going to be looking at minimizing in the future. Pepsi on the whole wants to focus on low sugar, low calorie content beverages. Again, this is something that the industry has been doing for quite some time. Pepsi has announced that by 2025, they expect at least two thirds of their beverages to contain only 100 calories or fewer per a normal 12 ounce serving. Obviously 12 ounces for those who don't know, that's a normal can of soda. This is going to require nonstop research and development spending in order to satisfy customers' taste. Obviously, taste is going to be something that R&D teams are going to be focused on, but also the contents of the drink. Pepsi is up against new companies that are, in fact, non-GMO, organic, and free trade. They're talking about cane sugar, those types of things, trying to shy away from the high fructose corn syrup that is still in conventional Pepsi products. That all said, international sales is really where the growth factor was for this particular quarter. And the company as a whole is looking towards the international segment to grow out the company in the future. And you see, as a percentage of revenue, 40% comes from international sales now. That includes both food and beverage segments. And you see that the food under Pepsi umbrella is doing fairly well. Even in North America, you see net revenue for Frito-Lay up and also smart food popcorn and Doritos chips grew 3% while Quaker Foods, which includes Quaker Rice Crisps and Quaker Life Cereal, grew a modest 1%. Organic growth from new and emerging brands and prospects is expected to increase now, but at a slightly lower pace than previously thought at 2.3% for the full year versus 3% previously. PepsiCo, ticker PEP, has seen its shares on the stock market stay fairly unchanged over the past few days and through trading on Wednesday with this announcement came out. $109 per share now versus a recent all-time high of $117 per share. So you can see that despite the falling revenue in some of their products in North America, their stock is still fairly robust and the company still has a market cap of $155 billion. Billion dollars. However, Pepsi has proved to be a stock 
that one can hold for moderate returns in the long run. Looking at the five-year chart, it's up 54%, also near a 3% dividend yield. Currently, according to NASDAQ, their institutional ownership stands at 71.4%, so pretty much the definition of a stable stock with PepsiCo, even with some of the latest speed bumps and hiccups the company's experienced. We talked about it at the top of the show, and you know about the perks that come from owning your own business. Honestly, if Leighton and I didn't own our own businesses, we probably wouldn't be able to record this podcast, but you also get the nice benefit of being your own boss and some financial freedom. But maybe if you're not a business owner and you're listening to the podcast, you're just not sure where to start. However, perhaps a good place to start would be opening a UPS store franchise. You can be rest assured that the UPS store brings in 35 years of franchising experience and was just ranked the number four top franchise to own by Entrepreneur Magazine's 2017 Franchise 500 list. The UPS store offers, of course, stability, the support and reputation of their brand, and a proven business model with all the training and support you'll need to market your entrepreneurial dream. You see that stores are available in both small and large markets across the country, and their franchising experts will help you find a location that's just right for you. Plus, there's financing for those who qualify and special programs for military veterans. The time to promote yourself to business owner is now. Visit the UPSStoreFranchising.com slash focus to get started today. That's the UPSStoreFranchising.com slash focus. Well, Monsanto's earnings reflect bullishness in the seed buying market from farmers here domestically, but also they're eyeing international growth as they're seeing that the population increases for the next 15 to 20 years remain fairly high. Earnings for the fourth quarter, fiscal year 2017 and full year 2017 came out this week, and they also released guidance for 2018 in a very large presentation going through their 26 slides in the presentation. It certainly seems that Monsanto has more of a wider annualized lens in which executives view performance. And you can see performance for this latest quarter, very positive. And it's reflected in their share price and the overall sentiment in the industry. We should preface this story with the most recent press release that the fact that a buyout offer is still pending from Bayer AG. You see the $66 billion proposal from last year is actually facing some renewed scrutiny by regulators in the EU. This after reports from Bayer that showed confidence that the deal would close in the 2017 calendar year. If the EU and other regulatory bodies do approve the deal, the combined company would then be the largest seed and agrochemical company in the world. So that really tells you why regulators are looking through the books, really seeing if this is going to be unfair competition. Regulators are looking closely to see if the combined company would not only create those unfair markets, but if the current practices by Monsanto are acceptable. Large and ongoing debates on the cancer risk of some of their chemicals used in certain products are actually being talked about right now in mainstream media. The number one being Roundup, the common chemical produced by Monsanto is actually coming under renewed scrutiny as well. So a lot of interesting things with this company, but you can see one thing, it's still a powerhouse here domestically. So let's take a look at some of these fourth quarter results. Revenue without one-time expenses and add-ins grew 4.9%, a significant margin for Monsanto to 2.8%. 
$2.686 billion, which topped expectations of $2.53 billion. Now, as Layton alluded to, we've never profiled this company on either podcast before, but it is interesting to see the juxtaposition in share price between a Pepsi and a company in Monsanto that's really at the forefront of the production process for many consumables. People don't realize how involved Monsanto is in so many products that are sold at grocery stores or used in the food industry. You know, if you were to ask me before this podcast, I probably would have told you that the two companies had comparable market caps, but in reality, Pepsi has twice the valuation despite this revenue boost from Monsanto year over year in this last quarter and overall for the year as a whole. Now, net income for the company grew 110% to $20 million. So their margins, when you look at the revenue and then you look at the bottom line number of $20 million, obviously greater there for PepsiCo. However, there were some issues during last year's fourth quarter for Monsanto that made this quarter appear favorable, thus the 110% growth in terms of profit. They reported a $191 million loss last year due to some massive one-time adjustments. This quarter, on an adjusted basis, earnings per share for Monsanto hit $0.05. Cents. So that's one of the reasons why you don't see that robust of a market cap there. Monsanto's margins aren't as large and their earnings per share is somewhat smaller. Sales of corn seeds and traits, which is Monsanto's biggest segment by revenue, rose nearly 16%. Soybean seeds and traits sales climbed 22% in the quarter, ended August 31st. So that's what we started out the story with. There's a lot of bullishness right now in the seed market. So much of what we consume comes from soybeans, comes from corn, not just in the food industry, but also in other consumables industries as well. And this is one of the reasons why Monsanto, looking forward as they set some of their benchmarks for the next fiscal year, they feel rather bullish about their future growth. Despite the pending buyout from Germany's Bayer AG that I talked about at the beginning of the story, the company is still showcasing to shareholders why they are primed to take advantage of an ever-growing world population. So let's say the buyout does not go through. They're trying to tell their potential and current shareholders that the company is still extremely valuable and that those people, the growing population in the future, those people are still going to need Fed. Therefore, the seed growth is expected to climb. They have put together what looks to be a regression analysis that takes into account previous sales, income growth from individuals. We talk about income growth on the Retail Focus podcast. It is no longer stagnant and a growing human population to predict the bushel increase needed through 2016. And they actually provide two particular graphs that I took a look at and tried to dissect. The trend lines here provided for their larger corn and soybean segments. For corn, longer trend analysis showed bushel growth at an annualized rate of 2.7%, soybean growth 3.6%. So you can see overall between now and 2026, those segments are going to grow around 40 to 50% given everything else constant. They listed advancements in both breeding, biotech, biologicals, and other current data being mixed in, such as data being brought in from current plantations, all as reasons they feel primed to match supply with those demand increases. All of these will look at disease control and fending off pests, of course, which is something Monsanto has always done in seed preparation, but perhaps all leading to the most important factor, 
field yield. Obviously, you're going to need the healthiest fields possible in order to get that demand met with that supply. Obviously, Trent, they are talking about this buyout deal, though, in the presentation, and that seems to be looming over here as the share price still does not match the valuation given by Bayer AG. Let's talk a little bit about this buyout as Monsanto highlighted this during their most recent annual report. The deal has already been accepted by shareholders of the company. Many analysts have pretty much assumed the deal would be finalized rather soon, and that's one of the reasons why shares continue to be up. They were up ever so slightly after the fourth quarter report itself, hovering around $119 per share. That gives it a $52 billion market cap. To put this in perspective, the deal, if it were finalized and closed on, would be giving shareholders $128 per share. That's a 7.5% premium over the current share price. However, there's a $2 billion breakup fee that Monsanto will be afforded if the deal does not go through. So if the deal is struck down by regulators, for example, the $2 billion would be funneled back to Monsanto, which, of course, is a benefit to their bottom line, regardless of what happens to this deal. And potentially, you could see a possibility of individual divisions being sold off, akin to Walgreens buying just a fraction of Rite Aid stores if the deal is struck down by regulators. Because of some newly found hurdles, however, Monsanto, according to their presentation, is expecting an early 2018 closing. We wouldn't be surprised if the two companies remained separate based on what we're seeing right now from the FTC. Given the current antitrust climate in some sectors like pharmaceuticals and, of course, in retail, which we've talked about at length in the Retail Focus podcast, it is possible that regulators see this combination between Bayer and Monsanto is dangerous to the markets as it is. Monsanto commands such a great market share in the United States. And while the two companies would most likely create a lot of synergies that would, in theory, reduce pricing for farmers, the investors ultimately want the same or higher levels of return. So you wouldn't necessarily see pricing go down. Now, in theory, you might argue that pricing would go down. But again, they have a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. And also you have the aspect of the fact that Monsanto and Bayer would control a lot of the technology in this field. And because of that, there are a lot of different factors at play. Farming, unlike other facets of food production, they also get subsidies. So subsidies are thrown in there. There's a lot of things to take into account if you're the FTC looking at this potential deal. Well, customers in the U.S. celebrated National Taco Day on October 4th, meaning that several QSRs and fast casual restaurants rolled out their promotions commemorating the event. The list of businesses getting in on the action was obvious and not so obvious at times. We expected, of course, Taco Bell with their immense social media presence to lead the charge, and they did not disappoint. Taco Bell began to roll out their media coverage from many mainstream news outlets up to a week prior to the Taco Day promotion. But this was amplified Monday and Tuesday of this week. Unlike with the others, Taco Bell excused the giveaways and instead focused on a unique promotion and packaging to attempt to drive traffic and social media engagement on October 4th. Taco Bell offered a $5 gift set for National Taco Day, allowing customers to choose four tacos in the $5 set. Classic Crunchy and then the three Doritos Locos, Nacho Cheese, Cool Ranch, and Fiery. Those tacos came in a special box featuring the Taco Bell logo prominently. 
Although some on social media seemed upset that there were no giveaways or free tacos, the box did come with a bit of a discount. You see, ordering the four tacos separately would cost around $7.25 in most markets, so it would be a discount of around 30% or around $2.50, plus the gift box if that means actually something to you if you're a huge Taco Bell fan. Additionally, on social media, Taco Bell churned out their Taco Emoji engine. If users tweeted a taco and another emoji at them, Taco Bell's Twitter account would tweet a GIF at them. And one customer tweeted a taco and a sad face, for example, and Taco Bell responded with a GIF of a taco tripping and falling. This caused some awkward moments as customers would post questions with a taco emoji and they would go unanswered for some time since their automated engine was set up to ask them to tweet the taco emoji with a different emoji. So aside from Taco Bell's promotions, let's look at what other companies were doing. First with other QSRs, I guess technically a QSR Plus in Del Taco, they used the opportunity to push their e-membership program. So those who signed up for the program on Taco Day or those who are already members got a coupon for a buy one, get one free Queso Crunch Taco. This was also a tie-in to their newly released Queso Remake, which we tried recently. And honestly, I'm going to say it just doesn't stack up to Chipotle in our personal eyes. And, and that's despite the fact I should note that I am, full disclosure, a Del Taco shareholder and not a Chipotle shareholder. I think Chipotle's queso runs Del Tacos out of the water, despite some analysts saying differently. And just as a quick aside here, we'll get to Chipotle's promotion or lack of promotion in a second. But a lot of analysts saying Chipotle's traffic numbers are stagnant with queso. Not the case with the Chipotle store managers that I've actually spoken to. Some have had a difficult time actually keeping queso in stock because people are now jumping on it as an upsell. Anyhow, Taco Bueno moving to another QSR Plus. They gave away one free taco with any purchase on Taco Day. They do this pretty often. I've got a stack of free taco coupons at home actually from Taco Bueno as a result of their great many promotions. You move up to the fast casual regiment. Chipotle did not participate in taco day interestingly enough fuzzy's taco shop did though they're a growing fast casual tex-mex chain based in texas they sold one dollar tacos on october 4th which is a slight discount over the regular taco rate california tortilla on the east coast offered buy one get one tacos up to 10 per order and members of qdoba's loyalty program got either a free drink or free chips and salsa I found this interesting. Neither of those are actually tacos. And with Qdoba, they have a Taco Tuesday promotion in many of their markets where they sell inexpensive tacos. Wouldn't have been too difficult to just kind of repeat their Taco Tuesday promotion for this instead of just giving away a free drink or free chips and salsa. Now, granted, when you look at chips and salsa or a free drink, those are both incredibly high margin items. So you're not really out that much money by giving those away free. Moving into FSRs. The Tex-Mex chain Choice had $1 beef tacos and also t-shirts with tacos on them for $10. They also had a special social media promotion wherein participants who found a secret word in their social media posts could get a free taco if they gave that word to their wait staff. On the Border offered unlimited 50-cent tacos, either beef, chicken, tinga, or veggie crispy tacos there, the smaller versions of their crispy tacos. Chevy's Fresh Mex gave out a free taco to each guest who said taco to their server. And in an interesting twist, a non-Tex-Mex or non-Mexican forward FSR got in on the mix. Red Robin jumped in with a Taco Tavern Double that was released on Taco Day. This is actually a limited time offer that'll run through the end of the year and includes things like tortilla strips 
and guacamole. So some unexpected restaurants jumping in on Taco Day, despite the fact that someone like Red Robin doesn't usually sell tacos to their customer base. Well, we've reached the final segment of the Food Focus podcast. We'll call it What We Ate, where each Leighton and I talk about one food item that we tried over the last week. And Leighton, we begin with you. After our trip to shop.org in Los Angeles, I flew into the Denver airport. And from there, I went to Colorado Springs, where I tried a new restaurant, to me at least, Extreme Pizza, which has franchise locations throughout California, Colorado, Virginia, among other states. The franchise is growing, and I, to be honest, never heard of it before. We hadn't talked about it on the podcast. So I went in thinking it was a newer concept, something similar to Pizzeria Locale, focusing on ingredients. It was more of a conventional pizza. However, they did differentiate in terms of the number of toppings they had and the number of different specialty pizzas that they offered their customer base. I tried that Paella Pie, which was a Hawaiian pineapple, Canadian bacon, orange tomato sauce mozzarella and cheddar laced pizza and overall it was a very good pizza it had a gluten-free crust it was something that i personally liked i like pineapple on any sort of pizza that i try it brings a different sort of texture to the pizza the price point was fairly reasonable but if i'm being honest they do have a relationship with groupon and i was able to utilize that overall the pizza was very good at a fair price point But this is something that really didn't blow my socks off. This wasn't something that I could see really taking off in the near future and being something, the new up-and-coming franchise that's going to take over Domino's or anything like that. But overall, it's worth trying if you're in those particular markets. So you had mentioned that we were there in L.A. at shop.org. And one of the interesting things about shop.org or actually at the L.A. Convention Center is there were some after conference meet and greets and that type of thing. And at these meet and greets, they were serving beers from Santa Monica Brew Works. And I got a chance to try all three, both the IPA and the Belgian-style wit that they had. But to me, the most impressive beer, and this surprised me, was the 310 Blonde Ale from Santa Monica Brew Works. Now, 310 is, of course, reflective of that area code. And I say it surprised me because I looked online beforehand, and some of their ratings on Untapped and Beer Advocate aren't all that great. They don't distribute very widely, but I rather enjoyed this 310 Blonde Ale. It was warm when we were there, and it was really the the perfect beer for a warmer day. It wasn't as light as most blondes are. It was a fuller-bodied beer without being actually heavy, and so it wasn't quite as filling as many of your beers are that are out there, many of the IPAs that we tried on the trip and that type of thing. But I will say this, in addition to the fact that it was a little bit lighter in terms of body, it had this wonderful fruit essence. I was getting a lot of apricot on its body after the nice, clean entrance for the beer, and they don't add apricot to the beer. And actually, halfway through my first bottle of it, I looked online to make sure that they weren't adding apricot to the beer. It had so much of that fresh, light fruit essence, but a very enjoyable beer, something that's certainly sessionable, is great for warmer weather, and it's unfortunate that they don't distribute to where I live or where you live, Leighton, but still a good beer. If you happen to go to Southern California, again, 310 Blonde Ale from Santa Monica Brew Works, certainly give it a thumbs up. It's not going to be a winter warmer or anything like that, but it's a fantastic beer for about April through October. 
in that particular market. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Food Focus podcast. For Layton, I'm Trent. Coming up on this week's Retail Focus, we'll have interviews with a VP at Adobe and also someone with LogMeIn talking about retail technology from behind the scenes, artificial intelligence, and some of the newest technology that those giants are rolling out to assist retailers. We'll also talk a little Walmart, and we'll try to dispel notions that Whole Foods may actually be stealing customers from Walmart, Target, and others. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. 